Welcome to A Cult of Personality, Esoteric Podcast Extraordinaire. I'm your host, Greg Kaminsky. Your co-host is Billy Hepper. In episode number 213, we have the legendary Scott Gosnell for an amazing conversation about his translation of Giordano Bruno's essays entitled On Magic. You can find Scott online at bottlerocketscience.blogspot.com. A Cult of Personality podcast is made possible by you, the listeners, and by the subscribers to chamberofreflection.com, our membership website, who aids us in the cause of informed, authentic, and accessible interviews about Western esotericism. Thank you again. Because of your support, we're able to bring you recordings of this caliber and many more to come. And please remember, we are in the midst of our Meditations on the Tarot Study Circle that is open to all Chamber of Reflection paid members. At the end of this month, we'll be meeting to discuss the Pope slash Hierophant. Join us. Anathema Publishing Limited. Quality Occult Books and Contemporary Esoterica. Established in 2011, Anathema Publishing aims to provide superior literature in content and form by creating a trinosophic relationship in Troth and Gabo between publisher, author, and reader. Anathema Publishing produces refined books for the true bibliophile on topics ranging from Gnosticism traditional craft, alchemy, hermeticism, witchcraft, to Luciferian theosophy. www.anathemapublishing.com Our intro music is Awakening by Paul Avgerinos, and the outro music is Magic of Love by Vasily Boykov. So, Scott, I want to welcome you back to A Cult of Personality podcast. Thanks so much for joining us again. It's really a pleasure to speak with you just as last time um, as we did in the Chamber of Reflection recording. So it's great to have an opportunity to talk with you on the podcast and to have a chance to speak with you with my new co-host, Billy, which um, I'm greatly excited about. So it's wonderful to see you. Great. Well, it's a pleasure to be back. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Billy uh, to start the interview. Perfect. Well, hello, Greg, and welcome to the show, Scott. It's great to be here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I've been following your work for some time now, Scott, so it's great to finally connect. Thank you. Could you maybe start things off by just giving our listeners some some quick background on what you do and who you are? Sure. Um, so most of them who know me will probably know me from a series of translations that I did of uh, most of the memory works and magical works of Giordano Bruno, who was a 16th century heretic and philosopher uh, who was eventually burned at the stake uh, for his views and for various other activities that he was undertaking. Um, I'm also a former neuroscientist and uh, I'm currently on the board of directors of a research foundation that looks into spiritual emergency, uh, meditation, meditation-related issues, and uh, how it may be beneficial for people, but also the, the sort of problems that they may get into. And so that's, uh, that's been going really well lately. That's great. Thank you. Could you maybe share with us, I'm just curious, how someone like yourself who came from, you know, more of a, a business and, and medical background, how you suddenly get involved in translating Renaissance philosophy from Latin into English? I'm, I'm interested in what hooked you on Bruno in particular that made you dive into his work. So the original doorway into it was through uh, the art of memory. So there's this memory technique where you place images around a building uh, called a memory palace or through some other structure, and then you retrieve the memories by walking mentally through that building. Um, and it's something that I'd learned about as an undergrad 
uh, in psychology classes, but sort of never did much with it. And then one day was reading uh, John Crowley's Egypt series, where he goes a lot into um, uh, Renaissance memory techniques, magic, and, and sort of the history of science. Um, and then from there got led into reading Francis Yates's Art of Memory, and I really loved it. But for whatever reason, uh, Bruno's source work was not in translation at that time. So, you know, she had tantalizing little bits, little quotes of it, descriptions of what were in the various books, but nothing, you know, no, no actual editions were out of um, the complete books, which would tell you what actually, how to actually do it. And so I spent several years trying to encourage, plead with, uh, request Badger grad students and or uh, faculty who taught Latin or who knew Latin to actually undertake the, the translation of these works. And um, meanwhile, I was doing various other things. But, you know, once you've sort of asked people enough uh, why they don't do it, you have to ask yourself why you don't do it. You sort of volunteer yourself. So... I didn't know Latin at the time and basically dragged myself with a, with a dictionary in one hand through the whole uh, first book, which is uh, De Umbris Idearum, or On the Shadows of Ideas, um, and put together a translation of that. There were about five or six different groups of people who contacted me as I was doing it and said, oh, yes, we're also doing a, a translation of this. And... You know, I would keep in touch with them, and after a few weeks, they would kind of give up. But, you know, for whatever reason, I was very stubborn, and so dragged myself hand over hand through the entire thing. Uh, tried to get it published with traditional academic publishers, uh, but this was in the aftermath of the big, um, big bank meltdown. So Italy and Greece... Uh, Italy in particular was in, in bad shape, and so they had been supporting translations of classical Italian and, and Latin works into English, uh, and their support for that dried up, right? and quite rightly so. But then there were other problems, and the, the other academic publishers said, well, we're not really going to do much right now, and there were some other misfortunes that occurred. And so eventually I just said, well, I'll just have to self-publish it. And it turned out to be something that was in high demand and continues to be very popular today. Thank you. Um, one of the books uh, you, you also translated, or I guess it's a series of books, is uh, under the title of On Magic. And uh, I have to thank you for, number one, for doing the translation and for allowing me to uh, read a copy of it because uh, I was really fascinated by this text. And I'm just wondering if you could just briefly for our listeners who uh, may not be aware, just give like a like high level overview synopsis of the major themes of each of the sections of the text. Okay. So the, Book on Magic uh, in this series that I did is, uh, I think, seven or eight different essays on topics in magic that Bruno wrote toward his later years, for the most part. Um, so he has his basic worldview is informed by uh, classical learning. So if you remember Ficino and uh, Dilla Mirandola, um did a lot of the work in the previous century of bringing Plato and Platonism back into the academy and into, um, into play in Western Europe. So Bruno really takes this up. He, he was trained as an Aristotelian, as you would be in, uh, in any church, uh, church position, but was really excited by the, uh, the Platonism and Neoplatonism that was going on at the time. It was kind of the new learning. Um, and so the foundations of the 
uh, on magic essays are based out of that complete view of both Aristotle and, and Plato and their followers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you listen to the Schwepp, you can kind of trace the the um, the history of how Neoplatonism came to be from Middle Platonism and so forth. Um, but the first few essays, both on magic, the eponymous essay in the in the collection, and in uh, Theses of Magic, he is looking at the theoretical grounding of why magic works, what magic is, how people look at magic. So, for example, he lists nine different definitions of magic as used by various people, ranging from simply being something that a philosopher or a wise person would be able to do and to know through their skill at understanding the hidden processes of nature or the occult processes of nature, um, you know, and ranging down to whatever it is that the church was persecuting, uh, you know, little ladies who were slightly deluded and had some folk practices, right? So he, he goes through that f- series first and says, okay, we're going to take the view that it is, um, it is the, holistic philosophy, which has been passed down to us from Hermes Trismegistus, from Plato, from all of these other sources, um, and which is affirmed in the Bible. So um, then he goes through and he says, well, how does this, how does this whole thing work? And he says, essentially, after he, he works through about 50 different theses or principles of magic, he says, you know, it boils down to love as the driving engine. He says, love is the thing that makes the planets circle around each other. Love is the thing that binds people together. Uh, love is the thing that underlies all emotions. So he says, for example, hate is really just someone has done something awful to someone that you love or to yourself who you love and you therefore dislike that thing. He says, but really it reduces down to love. Fear is, you know, something is threatening, something that you love um, and you want to protect it or flee the danger. Um, You know, and so he goes through all of the emotions and he says, you know, essentially love is the most powerful force in the universe, you know. And he believed that everything was animate, everything was ensouled, um, and everything was connected right, by this love and, and by the soul. Um, it's a really powerful system, or it's a really powerful unifying principle to use. Um, and I think it's one of the, the things that really sets him apart. One of the other interesting things is that in a couple of the other essays, he goes into the four elements and four elements theory. And he says, well, you know, there are fire, water, air, earth. He says, you know, of these, each of them has subdivisions. So there's fire of fire, earth of fire, water of fire, all of these things. And he says, likewise, you can break down, um, you know, humans, animals, plants, and minerals are, another quaternity which correspond to these four characteristics. Um, And he says, so essentially everything in the universe is made up of these four things in some combination, and they don't just show up in the sort of the obvious way that, uh, you know, earth is just dirt or earth is stone, but it is, there is something that is earth in every system, right? The solidity of it, um, he likes water to be the connective tissue. And he thinks that, in fact, if the classical model is right, water is the heaviest of the four elements rather than earth, which is the usual one. So he says, um, you know, because he, what he does is he says, well, if you look at dust, he says dust will float on water, dry dust will float on water, but once it's wet, it sinks. He says, therefore, water has to be, you know, heavier than earth. And he says, um, likewise, if you dig a hole in the earth, the water will flow in and it will find its lowest level. Whereas if you dig a hole in earth, the earth will remain piled up around it. 
So it's not necessarily particularly heavy under that system. Um, he also has essays on medicine. Um, he, was, he had an assistant or a student whose name was Bessler, and he apparently wrote this essay on Lullian medicine, which is a way of diagnosing what fevers mean. So if you have, say, a fever due to plague or a fever due to malaria, and uh, malarian fever uh, peaks every few days. Uh, you know, plague fever peaks every other day, I think. And so he said you could time these things and then do astrological operations on them to figure out whether the patient was likely to die or not. Right. And so uh, in this essay, it's one of the interesting things about it is that, you know, they they were very close observers of the phenomena, even though the explanation for what was going on may not have been correct. Mm. Right. So they were very close observers, for example, that you can in fact have infection by two or more strains of malarial fever. Right. So or the, the malarial parasite, and that produces a distinct pattern in how the fever works. And one of them is much more virulent and much more deadly than the other. So it was very important to notice how, you know, how the fever was progressing, how it was cycling, whether there were two cycles to it or one. Um, and that would affect the prognosis of the person who was the patient. And so he has that, and, and basically once you have the, the seven essays, you have a complete magical kit. So he has another section, which is all uh, spiritual magic, things taken from Agrippa, Trithemius, and uh, Peter de Bono. And he takes those, has various spirit lists, talks about why spirit work is basically like math. Um, and he says, you know, the, the spirits are affected by math and by drawings because they are partially ideal creatures. So whereas humans are very strongly physical, the physical component of these spiritual creatures in all of their diversity is much lighter. It's much thinner and more rare, right? But what they are affected by is by thought, by pattern, by design. And so they're sort of halfway between the astrological realm and the physical realm. Yeah, I thought this was a particularly fascinating section for me uh, because I felt like, I mean, I'd always had this sort of implicit understanding of the sort of magic squares and the sigils and seals derived from these and the and the various correspondences with the words or phrases that related to the numbers contained or indicated by various aspects of these squares and um, but I'd never seen like a, a coherent argument for why this works how this works um, in an intellectual philosophical way so I felt it was particularly interesting to be able to read that and um and and then there's this this other thing that it introduces i think which is like doing that sort of mathematical magic that he's talking about or teaching there just i think as studying math in general kind of allows for this appreciation for structure order form of reality that maybe one doesn't have an appreciation for prior. Yes. And I think, I know that you work with uh, Vajrayana as a tradition. And mm -hmm. so, for example, the deities that appear and the mandalas that appear, right? They are represented as just as illusory as anything else, but also the mandala that is drawn or the tanka that is drawn is actually 
in some way the deity, mm-hmm. right? That is the body of the deity. The mantra is the body of the deity on the level of, of the voice or of sound. And so um, likewise, the character or, you know, the, the bija, the, the letter which represents the deity is the deity. Mm-hmm. So it's a similar kind of philosophical underpinning to say, right, that the, the, the physical body of the spirits or the physical connection of the spirits is, is that character that represents them. Um, and also, it's a realization that because you can manipulate those characters and manipulate whatever it is that they are, you know, projecting into the physical world or the semi-physical world, um, right? You can manipulate them like you can manipulate mathematical symbols, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? If you just simple multiplication, right? You're changing those numbers into something else. Yes. So if you bring, right, if you bring these entities, whatever they may be, uh, even if they are no different from a mathematical entity, if you are bringing them through some operation, you are changing them or transforming them in some way, right? But at the same time, like three is always three, right? Even if you've done some other mathematical operation and then ended up with something else, you still have, right? It, It still reappears the next time you need a three. Certainly. Yeah. So yeah, it is, it's an interesting perspective on, like as a history of science buff, I'm also interested in the fact that we may believe things which are quite different, or we may uh, entertain that framework, that mental framework, that philosophy underlying these things either way, and say, you know, this is not what we necessarily believe, but it's interesting that someone worked through this in a logical and rational way and said, this is how it would work, right? If it did work this way, mm-hmm. right? So you don't necessarily have to buy into everything that Bruno says, but you sort of say, okay, like just because they were early moderns doesn't mean that they were benighted and just sort of superstitious and believed anything that worked any which way. They were actually trying to formulate a science and you can see the descendants of that thought in modern science, in modern practice. Um, so yeah, it's it's a very powerful and very useful set of essays to to work through. Yeah, thank you. That's very well put. And then kind of- uh, the last essay is the one on binding, I think, mm-hmm. um, which uh, there was a Romanian academic named Ion Kulianu, who wrote Eros and Magic in the Renaissance, which is a fantastic book. And he mentions that this is one of the most powerful books on or essays on political science and on the manipulation of people's psychology by some means. So he says, you know, for example, propaganda is used as a means by which to bind people through their emotions, through their reason, through, you know, whatever it is that there may be. And this is very interesting, right? So Bruno specifically is talking about how do you bind one person, but also how do you bind an entire city or a state or a country, right? How do people come to think of themselves as being, American, for example. That's a powerful idea, right, that in some sense binds you all together, right? How does marriage work, right? Marriage is, at some level, a psychological bond, right? Because you have stood up in front of a crowd of people, your friends and relatives, and and an officiant, a priest, or a judge, or whoever it may be, and you've said some words, and everybody can point at you and they say, oh, those two are married now, right? And so the bond is psychological, but it's also social. It's also a, it's an agreement among people, right? And it has real force, right? You may have been ordained. You may have been 
Uh, you may have graduated from college, right? You have the degree there, you can point to it, right? And so that degree is now, that knowledge is now bound to you through that degree. Anybody can, you know, anybody can check that out. We all agree, yes, you know, Greg Kaminsky has graduated from Harvard Divinity School, right? And so these are the kind of bonds that he's talking about. Um, one of the interesting things for me coming from a background in psychology and neuroscience is that, right, this is very early psychology. It's proto-psychology before the thing was even named. And so, um, you know, as with the art of memory, he spends a lot of time figuring out how memories are formed, what you actually remember more, right? And so it's not quite experimental science, but it is, you know, this close observation like he did with the fevers. So you have this very intensive and very objective way of looking at things. Mm. And this is quite attractive. This is also quite, you know, he gets a lot done without having particularly advanced apparatus, without having the sort of rigorous, um, the rigorous methods that you would expect today. But he does get a, a lot of good ideas out there, and he sort of, you believe that he's he's doing something real. Oh, for sure, yeah. It's fascinating. You, you touched on this, Scott, earlier, but he spends a lot of time with these categorizations of spirits, and he also writes quite extensively on the topic of angels. And it reminded me a lot of similar studies that his contemporary Pico was making with the whole angelic hierarchies that, that you touched on in your, your book, Greg, Celestial yes. Intelligences. Mm -hmm. I was wondering, could you shed some light maybe on this whole obsession with naming and categorizing the angels that seem to be blossoming during that time in the West, do we know where where these ideas came from? Were they imported from other sources? Like, were these guys actually rolling up their sleeves and trying to communicate with these beings? Well, we know D certainly was. You know, D and Kelly and other people were no doubt trying to speak with intelligences of the planets and of the stars, and yes, and literally with with the angels with the Virgin Mary, with the classical gods, with, you know, with the Trinity, with, you know, they were trying to talk to everything. Um, part of it, I think, is an aesthetic impulse, right, to categorize and to, if you look at Renaissance paintings where they have, you know, the choirs of angels and the, the blue lapis sky and the mm -hmm. sort of intricate gold leaf work done, you know, on the wings of the angels and everything, there's a certain, uh, there's a certain richness, but also a certain jewel box quality to the whole thing. And so there is this desire that the celestial order or the, you know, the, the spiritual order should mirror that diversity of life that they were sort of just becoming interested in. So if you think about um, the fact that, uh, and I'm, I'm blanking on the name, but um, one of the Renaissance philosophers decided to start climbing mountains, which everybody thought he was nuts, but at the time, because they were like, well, what do you care about, about what's at the top of the mountain? You know, you, there's nothing up there. You know, even the shepherds don't go up that high. And he was like, well, but like, it's interesting. He says, you know, and over here is, is this, you know, volcano, you know, uh, Mount Vesuvius over across from, uh, over across from Naples. And, you know, it's like this blew up, you know, and this killed a bunch of people. Wouldn't it be a good idea to go check on it? And so he goes, right, goes up the, up the side of the mountain, but there's this, it's the start of the age of exploration right and the start of at the time they were calling it natural magic but it's or you know but it's the ancestor of the naturalists who are trying to collect every animal and every plant and move them from one side of the world to the other and you know start building zoos start building um 
greenhouses and other things, right? Mm -hmm. So this is sort of the root of that piece, right? Where you say, okay, like the way to understand God's creation is by forming these universal collections, these, you know, the wunderkammer. And so thinking of that reflected back into the, the realm of the spirit, the soul, the, you know, whatever, whatever you want, you have this impulse to say, okay, just as many species exist or more among the spirits as there do among natural creatures, as there do among plants, right? So because that diversity and variety and the, not even a hierarchy, but, but a, a web of connections among them, right? Why should there not be spiritual creatures that are organized in these ways or that are categorized as we need to? Right. That makes sense. Thank you. Scott, I'm wondering, especially considering the, the topic of the last uh, essay on bonding and, and your description of, of that, um, how you would really characterize Bruno's contribution to Renaissance or post-Renaissance philosophy as a whole, especially uh, in terms of his legacy for modern occult practitioners and enthusiasts, as well as for maybe free thinkers and iconoclastic thought rebels. (laughs) Yeah, I think he was more influential in terms of that, in terms of being a free thinker, in terms of being a symbol of standing against the control of the church. Mm -hmm. Um, I think a lot of these ideas that came out of uh, the magical essays, they were just lost or not seen for a couple of centuries. And the stuff that was understood that was disseminated that was spread around was primarily the Italian literature, which is either uh, moral or it is a cosmological bent. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I think the second piece of it is that with the cosmological work, like, again, you have this thing where it's a trick of observation. So, He's, you know, you can sort of picture yourself lying with your back on the earth and staring up at the stars at night and coming to the realization that no matter where you lie, you think you're in the middle of the universe, mm-hmm. right? And then realizing that if you were up on one of those stars or up on another planet, you would also think you were the center of the universe and are no more correct because mm-hmm. you happen to be here than if you were over there. And that's a really spectacular mental trick. And then the other one, the the other insight that comes out of his cosmological books is that there was always a problem with infinity. So if the world were infinitely large, it would all fall in on itself and be crushed, or it would be solid rock from one end to the other, right? And so one of his key insights was, no, you can actually have a discontinuous infinity. So you can have space in between things, Mm -hmm. right? That isn't the same. And that you can have, oh, one of his lines is that you have spirit in everything, but it is not, and it is everything in everything, but is not everywhere, everything. So you have, for example, the world soul, right? Which, fills up the entire earth and, you know, the sky and everything around it and is present in all of that. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be this homogeneous sort of Aristotelian um, single substance that is expressed singly, right? Right. You don't have to have just a, you know, a world of uh, a world of custard pudding. You can have, you can have some lumps in it. You can have it appear in different ways, just like water appears as steam or water appears as ice. Or in fact, you know, you and I and everyone we know are two thirds water. 
Mm. right? So the water is mm. appearing as us, in us. And so in the same way, you can have a creative spirit that is necessarily different in everything else, and it appears just as it is, um, which is a really exciting insight, right? Very. And is, you know, he also makes the argument that partially got him in trouble, which is, you know, he's, if you posit this infinite universe, they say, you know, there's like, well, what, what happens to God if the universe is infinite? And he's like, well, my God is bigger than yours, <laughs> right? Like, which is better, a God who sticks the world in the middle and there are not, you know, nine or 10 or 11 spheres around it. And you have this sort of, it's, it's lovely clockwork, right? He says, but what if you have an infinite number of these? Isn't that better? Wouldn't a better God, you know, the best God do the best, biggest, you know, big beyond measure hmm. thing? And they sort of, <laughs> oh, you know, they were very, very offended by this. But, it, you know, you have to admit he has a point. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. As somebody who studies history myself, I'm, I'm interested in the whole court proceedings and the Inquisition trial that was brought against him. Do we know, you know, the church did not hand out death sentences very often. So it was a kind of heavy handed approach that they took with Bruno. Do we know what specifically the church found to be such a threat that they made such a public example out of him? Well, the the trick is, is that there were actually two trials, one of which it was in Venice. And that one was apparently because someone who he was teaching magic to, you know, tattled on him and said he was teaching magic. So they arrested him and mm. they sort of said, well, that's not really a problem. Um, you know, just don't do it again. Don't get caught again. And, but then the, the Roman Inquisition, which had been hunting for him for years and years, um, I think essentially because, first off, he was a priest, and they really did not like it when, if you were a priest, you ran off. Mm -hmm. right? yeah. Because if you, they let you go, then who knows? Maybe all of the priests would do that. Yeah. <laughs> so he, uh, so they, they haul him back to Rome, and they give him a seven-year trial. I don't know whether most trials that the Inquisition held were that long. I don't think so. Um, but, and in the course of that trial, they came up with seven or eight theses in his work that he should repudiate. And at one point he had said, yes, okay, I'll, you know, whatever you want. And they said, you know, we're going to stick you back in the convent down in Naples where you escaped from. And it was basically a big research facility, right? So they had brought a lot of bright priests down there for the Dominicans and they studied a lot and they had a huge library and so forth. And so kind of a cushy place to end up. But he said, well, you know, according to the trial record or the trial summary that we have, he said, well, I want to study astrology judicial astrology. And this was also not a big deal. Like it was considered to be the legit, you know, technology of the day and everybody did it, but this caused some sort of problem. And so they squabbled over that. And then he says, well, he says, finally he gets mad or they get mad and they say, he says, no, I'm not going to to give up on anything but the theological points. He says, the church is right on the theological points, but on the philosophical points, I have to have my own conscience. And they said, well, then, you know, screw you, right? And then they sentenced him to death. Yeah. So, you know, and, and some of the theological points were pretty, pretty bound to cause problems. So, you know, things like the Virgin Mary was not a virgin, um, the, the Christ was not divine, Jesus was not divine, he was a magician, that, you know, the world was not made in seven days, that there were many, many planets and worlds just like Earth, and people lived on them, 
right? All of these things, some of them were scientific, some of them were theological. And to some extent, I think they thought that he was a Lutheran, <laughs> which is interesting because he was also excommunicated by the Lutherans and also by the, uh, the Church of Geneva. So he was excommunicated from three different religions over the course of his life, partially due to the fact that he was just really abrasive. He was really difficult to get along with and used to insult people just tremendously. Mm. Um, so one could make an argument that he died, you know, he was a martyr for science, that he was a martyr for free will, that he was, you know, a, a pawn in the religious wars, in the, you know, the Copernican wars, in uh, all of these different things because he was a magician. You know, you can make all of these arguments or he was just a real jerk. And they got fed up with him after seven years of fighting back and forth and kind of threw up their hands and said, you know, this, this is just not, not going to work out. But there's also the theory that Cardinal Bellarmine, who was on the committee that uh, sentenced him to death, got such a bad taste in his mouth over it, because this was one of his first, first cases for the Inquisition, that many years later, Galileo came in front of him and he decided to take a much more mild tack with Galileo and kind of said, you know, just be a little bit more diplomatic, you know, kick back, relax. We'll put you in this uh, cathedral next door to your house and you'll be sort of under house arrest there. And, you know, just don't make a big scandal of yourself and it'll be all right. 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 Um, but yeah, so we don't, we, we actually don't have the full story of why he was executed, why the trial took so long. You know, there are a number of points where things just don't add up. Um, and we don't have the full trial record because essentially Napoleon came and seized a lot of these, uh, a lot of these documents and hmm. they think, uh, burned them, hmm. you know, for as fuel or just, you know, literally to start fires. Hmm. So, and hauled the rest back to Paris. So it could be that the, that the book where all of this is written is still somewhere in Rome or Paris or somewhere else because these things keep turning up. Fascinating. Um, and Bruno's writings keep turning up. It's interesting. Thank you. Because, mm -hmm. you know, reading over this, like at least reading this book on magic, I didn't get, you know, it didn't scream heresy to me. You know, there were there were parts in it that, you know, he's definitely being a bit of a fire firebrand, but, you know, at least with his whole sections on angels and demons, I mean, you could find a lot of that stuff in the works of the church fathers and he and Quack, like he, he quotes the saints and he quotes the, the church fathers. So, I didn't see this huge aversion to the church, at least not explicitly in this book. He instead just kind of struck me as a man who was trying to be curious about the world about him, you know, not as a man who was trying to dismantle or, or really disrupt the church hierarchy. No, no. The, the most of the stuff that's in the books is actually fairly mild to, yeah. as you say, is a bit of a firebrand, but you know, they're, they're, so they're, he tweaks them a little bit, but it's not anything that is particularly shocking. Mm -hmm. um, there's a suspicion that he had a secret society uh, that he had founded of the Jordanisti, uh, who were, you know, sort of predecessors to the Rosicrucians and uh, the Illuminati and all of these other groups that were either trying to, you know, overthrow the crowned heads of Europe or overthrow the church or whatever it may be. But, you know, that's not something that he wrote about, if it, if it even is the fact. But they certainly were frightened of him, right? Because the, the folks up in Venice were kind of uneasy about doing anything to him. Uh, and so they were kind of happy when they could send him down to Rome and let the Romans deal with him. Yeah. Let the Vatican deal with him directly rather than having to work out whether he was actually, 
you know, friends with various crowned heads or whether he was trying to overthrow them or what he was trying to do. They were like, this guy is too much trouble. We'll send him somewhere else. In the second half of our interview, available to members at chamberofreflection.com, also our Patreon and premium subscribers to Rockfin at rockfin.com slash occult of personality, Scott Gosnell delves even deeper into the magical philosophy of the brilliant Giordano Bruno. The essays Scott translated are overflowing with fascinating insights into the mind, humanity, and the world. Join us for that wonderful conversation. And please remember, we are in the midst of our Meditations on the Tarot study circle that is open to all Chamber of Reflection paid members. At the end of this month, we'll be meeting to discuss the Pope slash Hierophant. Join us. And I'd like to remind you that although you're able to listen to this podcast at no charge, it costs time and money to create. We ask you to support our efforts and the creation of future podcasts by joining the membership section at chamberofreflection.com or subscribing via Patreon at patreon.com slash occult of personality. As always, if you're already supporting the show or have done so in the past, my heartfelt thanks, and I salute you. <laughs>